This is the Beyond Mission podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. This year, we are exploring the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament in what we're calling a chronogeobiological flow. And we're following the chronology of the book of Acts, and then we jump off when the geography or the biography of somebody or the theology says it's time to stop and take a look at that. And today we're going to do a little bit of both. We're going to stay in the book of Acts, Acts 17, and then jump off into the book of First Thessalonians, because in Acts 17, Paul is in the city of Thessalonica. So we're back today. It's Mark with Ben, after last week with my sister-in-law, Martha. So welcome back, Ben, and we're, we're, it's good to be here together. We're in our familiar seats, but Paul is not. He's a hundred miles away from Philippi when he goes to Thessalonica. You know, this guy, I mean, he was on the move. And when I when I read a hundred miles away, I don't think a whole lot about it because I figure, you know, I'm just gonna get in my civic and and drive a hundred miles, not a big deal. But a hundred miles away on foot or by ship and going a little bit at a time and sailing somewhere and a lot of it a lot of it was on foot. It was a commitment for him to say, I'm going to take the gospel to the Jewish and non-Jewish people who live far from Israel. It was a deal, wasn't it? Yeah, and not just a commitment to go to a specific place. You know, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago in the podcast, uh, there were times when the Spirit kept him from going to one place and sent him to another place. And so... Uh, to step out of of his home, to step out of the the sending community, and to just and simply head out to where the spirit was leading and guiding, and they might have a have a general sense of where they were where they were headed, but nothing definitive. And so, just to the the want and the desire of Paul to proclaim the gospel, knowing what salvation had wrought in him, knowing that he. Uh, as he described himself as the chief of sinners who's received this grace, he could do nothing but share it with others, and he sought to share it with the world. He wanted to share it with the world. That's a fact. And here's one thing. The, the farther he got away from home, the more Greek the culture became. I mean, they're literally in Greece, but very Hellenistic. The, the world that he was now entering wasn't predominantly Jewish like it would be in in Jerusalem with a few Hellenistic influences, such as maybe whoever considered themselves to be the, the king of the Jews at the time, or even part of that land, because they had some areas of that, of that region of Judea that were Hellenistic. But I mean, when they're, now they're in thoroughly Greek culture. And, and the city of Thessalonica was a hub for commerce. It was a center for the worship of Greek gods. It was filled with people of wealth and influence and prominence. I mean, it was an important city for the for the Roman Empire and part of the Greco-Roman culture that dominated the world in that day. And we're we're going to see again how Paul enters into that world, but doesn't back away from it. Now, it's interesting that even though he's in this very Greek world, he he goes to these Jewish synagogues almost every time first, and that's where he spends his time is among the the fellow Jews. Now, there were Jews living all over the world. There's, there still are. There are Jewish people have lived everywhere. 
We've been familiar with that even down through time. They lived everywhere. But the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews over the years caused Jewish people to be, because of persecution, to travel and to live other places. And there were a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people living in all these very, very Greek culture. How do you, how do you think they made it? How did they survive like with their Jewish synagogue tucked away in the shadows of all of these Greek temples to the Greek gods? Yeah, there, there was some uh, cultural accommodation that undoubtedly uh, happened, um, but really life revolved around the synagogue itself. And so the Jewish community was just that. They were a community, almost like a borough inside of these larger uh, cities um, as they met together, as they worshiped together, um, as they did life together. Yeah, so, so that's where he goes first, right in the synagogue. Acts 17, right at the beginning, verse 1, when Paul and his companions, it says, came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue, as was his custom. Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, three weeks in a row, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, that is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Interesting, you know, that because there these Greek people were also hanging out in the synagogue, and some of them had become worshipers of, of the God, of the Jews, the one true God. And uh, there's prominent women. This, this term prominent women shows up more than, a, more than one time here in the book of Acts and chapter 17 even. And, Sometimes the gospel gets portrayed as it's very male-centered, and, and women were, were nothing in the early church because they look at a passage maybe out of context. But time and time, I mean, a couple of weeks ago we talked about in Philippi and that Lydia was a person who was, the faith was brought to, and then it was a, a slave woman the faith was brought to, and here prominent women the faith is brought to. Paul, again, he just doesn't care. <laughs> All the delineations that we have in life of saying this person's worthy of the gospel or not, it doesn't seem to matter, does it? No, no, it doesn't. And that's one of those aspects of like when we come to Scripture, um, there are people who have, who have sadly uh, utilized Scripture, misapplied Scripture, taken verses out of context to form uh, almost a misogynistic uh, theology. Uh, through uh, miscontextualization of particular verses, stripping them, them, stripping them of their context. Yeah. So some of these, some of these prominent women, along with the God-fearing Greek men and the Jewish people, were persuaded. Down in verse five, Acts seventeen five. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. I, I assume that those are probably. Greek people, not Jewish people. The Greek meaning not just from Greece, but it's the term used for Gentiles. So they, they, these bad characters from the marketplace, I'm assuming a lot of them were probably, some maybe Jews and some were probably Gentiles, and they formed a mob 
and started a riot in the city. Man, I'll tell you what, Ben, I don't know what the, the greatest reaction to one of your sermons has been or, or your your time in ministry has been. And I've had some I've had some people in in my churches over my years get pretty mad at me. They they've they've been really upset and I've had some stuff. That's probably for a, a whole other year of podcasts, you know, like Death by a Thousand Paper Cuts. Uh, we could title that one. But I've never had a riot get started because of my my ministry in a church or in a community. This was uh, pretty intense, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm sweet, gentle Ben, so... I don't get really much blowback for anything. You just get kind. I just and get kind and affirming uh, words. But yeah, we see that the gospel itself is offensive, and it can disrupt whole communities and put people on edge. And uh, this was something pretty constant in Paul's life. Uh, you know, when you read, especially like through Second Corinthians, and you see all that Paul, I think it's 2 Corinthians 11, where you see all that Paul suffered and endured uh, for the sake of the gospel. And I often ask when confronted with this, what, what was the compelling factor that kept Paul going? It was the redemptive love of God that he had come to experience. And, and in that, he could do nothing but declare it. He could do nothing but proclaim it. And uh, and his resilience and his persistence in it also uh, is a, is a revelation to us of his certainty of Christ's resurrection, which he draws on in Second Corinthians four, but draws on on that where he's got this assurance of eternity that sets him free in this world to proclaim the the gospel, not counting the cost to his own life because he so desperately wants to see others receive uh, this unconditional love from God that comes to us through Christ. Well, man, he needed that assurance because if you look at the words here that are used to describe what took place in, in uh, his life in Acts 17, 5 and beyond, they were jealous and bad characters and a mob and a riot, and they searched him out and dragged uh, dragged people out. <laughs> I mean, they, these weren't like, hey, we want to have a conversation with you. These people were were hot at, at Paul, and he needed the assurance that you're talking about to be able to keep going forward. And I love what they when they when all these people, the mob, the gets together, and the leaders of the mob get together. It says, or I'm in verse six, talking about Paul and Silas. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. As far as I know, this is the first their first time in Thessalonica, but this was not the first time the Thessalonians had heard about Paul and his companions. They already knew about the trouble all over the world. They knew about the trouble in Philippi. They knew about the trouble in Iconium. They knew about the trouble in all these different places we've been talking about through time, and that had traveled ahead of them, and they said, they've now come here. They're, they're stirring up. The Jewish people, they're stirring up the Gentile people. They're teaching things that we don't agree with, and they've brought it to our home. So they're, they're pretty mad. And in verse 7, it says, And Jason, Jason, this is the guy they dragged out, Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees. 
saying there is another king, one called Jesus. I, I, I hesitated there on that defying Caesar's decrees because it's a strange term to me. If you look back at verse 5, other Jews were jealous. So the Jews are leading this, the, the, the Jews who were angry. There were many Jews who believed. The Jews who were angry leading it, but they were appealing to Caesar, not to Yahweh, not to their one true God. They were appealing to Caesar and saying that's what's offensive. I mean, what was offensive to them was that he had proclaimed Jesus the Messiah. We just read that. But what they said, and this is just like when Jesus was tried, they appealed to Caesar and said, it's not about being a Messiah or not, because these guys won't care. It's about them calling Jesus king, and nobody can be the king except Caesar. So it's interesting, you know, it's strange bedfellows. It's, it's, it's just an interesting piece how these people are working together to try to stir the people up, but it doesn't really work. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Everybody's getting all nervous again. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. And so like the, the city officials like, yeah, back off a little bit. You know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of Greek gods and a lot of your, your Jewish God. There's a lot of things around here and almost like, let's just make them post bond and, and get them out of here. And it said, uh, verse 10, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And that'll be a, for a future podcast in Berea. But so he had to escape by the dark of the night. It was a risky business taking the gospel into this, this culture. And I wonder, I don't know what your thoughts are on the risk that we go to in our lives for the gospel or the, what we're willing to put our, are we really willing to put our lives on the line or reputations on the line or a good name on the line or you name it for the gospel? And it, it makes me pause. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where, again, with all the trappings that the world offers or born of fear of repercussions, there's always the temptation uh, away from being faithful. And, uh, and you know, at the, at the end of the day, as Paul told the, the, the church in Galatia, you know, am I, am I here to please God or to please men? And that's one of the questions uh, in vocational ministry or as a follower of Christ in general that we have to persistently ask ourselves, are we following after Christ or are our hearts and our lives being conditioned by things in opposition to Jesus? And, and what's amazing too, when, when, I read these, when I read these chapters, is that you know Paul uh, comes in, proclaims the gospel, suffers for proclaiming the gospel, and many of the cities that he's in is almost killed at, at one point um, within the, the book of Acts. And, and yet when he leaves, there are these, uh, these small or sometimes large church communities left behind and they, as new followers of Christ, continue to endure under persecution. Yeah, because I mean, you, you look at this, you think, oh, this is a failure because he was there and there were a few people that were believers, and, but there was a riot, there was a mob, and he had to escape by the dark of the night. And, it, and so if I'm putting that on my, on my resume, trying to get another church job, it doesn't look good, right? I mean, sure. you would look at this and you'd think, Paul just... He didn't make it in Thess Thessalonica. 
And if it weren't for First and Second Thessalonians, maybe that's what we'd think. Yeah, yeah, and even in the even in those those letters uh, to the church in Thessalonians, um, one of the things that that Paul encourages them to do uh, and celebrates that they are doing is that they're they're bearing up under persecution, just as he is. Yeah, let's let's take a look there. First Thessalonians. We're going to look a little bit at First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter two. Verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you know, he's writing to the Thessalonians, just a few years, really, just a few years after he had been there, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. I mean, yeah, they, they knew what he'd been through. They knew about the riot. They knew about the mob. They, they knew that he, he ducked out of town in the dark of the night. And he said, wait a minute, it wasn't without results. Yeah. We had previously, verse 2, suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. Remember, they were thrown in the slammer there, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you, Thessalonians, his gospel in the face of strong opposition. <laughs> yep, strong opposition. That is, that is a fact. And he just goes on. It's like, say, the, the ministry among you took a root. And even though I had to dodge out of town, you're carrying it forward now. And I love that. And so then down in verse 13 of that same chapter, First Thessalonians 2, verse 13, we, thank, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Okay, there you have it, right? Yeah, I mean that that's it because it wasn't just Paul's fancy preaching or his success in ministry or his pension plan that that made it seem like ministry in Thessalonica was successful. It was the fact that they accepted the word of God as the word of God. Yeah, and yeah, and if we jump back real quick to chapter one, he he emphasizes uh, that point, almost summarizes what you've shared, and in verse six of chapter one, he says, "You became imitators of us and of the Lord." In spite of severe suffering, you welcome the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Wow. Yeah, that, that's powerful. Because now that we put these two together with Acts and, and First Thessalonians, we can see what they endured, and yet they, they did it. They, they put their faith in God through the Word of God. And I, I just want one more thing, one more place I want to look is in First Thessalonians. Four. And I'd love to have time to do all of it, but we'll just trust the listener to do some research on your own or, or to go and find the devotions that we do each day or all the things, the, the means of learning and growing in this. But in chapter four, he, he, he turns a little bit, I think, in his letter. And he said, okay, you, you've, what you just read from chapter one, that through your suffering, you, you, you kind of imitated us, and you endured through this difficult times. You received the Word of God, chapter 2. But in chapter 4, he's saying, now turn your life around. That's how I'm reading it, at least. Chapter 4, verse 1, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are now, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this 
more and more. Down in verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And gives up some, some reminders there for things to avoid. Avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And he just goes on from there about, about their lives. But I find this interesting that okay, you've, you've seen our witness, you've heard our message, you've received the word of God as the word of God. Now you guys, in the middle of your very challenging culture in which you live, live in order to please God and become sanctified, be, become spirit-filled people who live by the, the holiness of God in your lives. He goes down in verse 9, just one more place, and I want to get your comment on it. In verse 9, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. So I'm just looking at this sort of like as a, he's now, he's now challenging them to not just be recipients who are in hiding in their culture, but actually to be culture changers, to live their lives in a way that's very countercultural to the Thessalonian way in this very passionate, sensual Greek gods and goddesses culture that was so dominant in that part of the world. He's saying, you got to please God, the one true God, and you have to do it more and more, and you need to be sanctified. You need to love one another in, a, in an authentic, God-loving kind of way. It's a, to me, it's a powerful message. So give me your, your 10 cents on this, brother. Yeah, I, I mean, not to be the redundant man of redundancy here, but you know, to your point, we're, we're called to be countercultural. We're, we're called to be resident aliens, as, as Peter says uh, in his letters. We're called to be resident aliens in uh, this world. We're called to display God's kingdom ethic. It's not believe in Jesus and live how you want. It's believe in Jesus and be renewed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Uh, not just, uh, you know, seeking for our hearts to be changed in such a way that the character of God becomes the joy of our life. And too often, um, people approach the scriptures um, almost from an, people who, who declare themselves to be Christians sometimes approach the, the scriptures adversarially rather than yielding themselves to God's self-revelation, to what God says is good, right, and whole. It's like sometimes we confront things that might be countercultural and we try to find ways around it so that we can become, you know, so that we can accommodate it to culture. And that's just not, God exists outside of our cultural context. He is holy. He is set apart. And we are called to be his set apart ones. We're called to be holy as he is holy. We're called to be sanctified. We're called to reflect Christ uh, throughout the, through the character of our lives. And as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we should have a longing to reflect the love and truth of the one who has saved us, who has rescued us. Um, and his truth is always bound perfectly to his love. And so it's a matter of just entrusting ourselves uh, to Christ and, and praying for God to change and to transform our hearts, that the longing of our hearts would really be for the things of Christ 
uh, because we should want our lives to reflect Jesus. Yeah, well, well said. I, I think that was just fantastic. Well, folks, uh, we're gonna we're gonna next week take a look at Second Thessalonians, and I'm not saying it's an upgrade, but my wife will be joining me instead of Ben, so it's a severe upgrade. And I'm looking forward to having that conversation on Second Thessalonians with Lisa, my, my wife. So I hope you can join me for that. And in the meantime, if you want to jump in deeper, you can go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, and click on the Be On Mission link. And that'll take you to more elements in this year-long study, including there's daily Bible readings and devotions and poems, there's the weekly sermon, more episodes of this podcast. And if you want to stay up to date, on these podcasts, we encourage you to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. May God bless.